Lord, thank you that we can be here, that we can open your word this morning. Thank you that your word is truth, that your word doesn't change, that your word is able to give us wisdom. Your word is, is able to get, bring us joy, to make us mature. So Lord, would you come now and open our eyes to see you, to see you clearly, that we might worship you in spirit and truth uh, as, we, as we listen, as we meditate, as we reflect. Lord, would you come, Holy Spirit, and change us and strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us with these words. And we pray this in your, your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to read just the first 11 verses of that chapter. Mark 14, verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest uh, Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. All right. So you can see now with this, that very, the very end, those last two verses were fully into the suffering of Jesus, that he's about to be betrayed by one of his own, by one of his inner circle. The, the last days of Jesus' life happened during a Jewish religious festival, perhaps the most important one, the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover. And if you know a little bit about Bible history, it's okay if you don't, um, the, the point of these uh, festivals was to commemorate a very, very important event in Jesus, or sorry, in the history of God's people. You got to go back to the Old Testament when God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God sent two brothers, Moses and Aaron, to go to the king of Egypt and rescue his people people, bring them out of slavery into the promised land of freedom and abundance. And if you know the story, if you've seen the movie, you know that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, said no. He, he didn't want to give up his slaves. And so God had to convince him by sending plagues, these, these horrible things uh, like hail and, and frogs and flies that came and just descended on the land. And still, every single time, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh said, no, I'm not going to let you go until after the 10th plague, the very last one, was the most severe of all. And that was where God commissioned an angel to go throughout the entire land of Egypt and claim for God every firstborn child. Every firstborn child and every firstborn animal in every household died in this plague, except except the firstborn children and livestock in the house 
of Israel among God's people. They were spared. And the reason that they were spared is God had told them in advance what he was going to do, and he, he helped them to prepare. He said, you need every family, every household. You'll take a, a, a lamb that's spotless, one year old, and you will slaughter it, and you will take the blood, and you will paint it above the doorframe of your house. And when the angel comes to your house, that angel will see the blood that's painted there on the doorframe and he will pass over your house and the firstborn of your house will be redeemed. That was the original Passover. The original Passover. And God said, every single year on the same month, the same day, I want you to remember what I did. Remember the, how I saved you, how I rescued you, not only from the angel of death, but I rescued you from slavery and brought you into the promised land. I was true to my word. And I want you to remember that and celebrate that every single year. Jesus' passion, his suffering took place during this festival season for a reason. And it was a reason that only God knew. It was a reason that only God had intended. And Mark shows us this very clearly in the very first two verses of chapter 14. You see, the religious leaders, they've been plotting against Jesus since chapter 3 in Mark. They've been angry with him ever since the day that he healed people on the Sabbath. And since chapter 12, they've been plotting not simply to have him arrested and punished, but to have him killed. But they want to do it secretly, they say, because why? Because they don't want to start a riot. They're afraid of the crowds. And they're afraid that if they arrested or had Jesus executed during the Passover festival, when thousands of thousands of extra people were gathered there in Jerusalem to celebrate, that there would be a riot. But what's interesting is that even though they did not intend for this to happen during the festival, God had other intentions. He very much wanted Jesus to suffer during the festival. And I'm gonna, we're going to see why in just a minute. Last week, we heard that Jesus was teaching his disciples about when the world would end and these cataclysmic things, that would, these signs that would suggest that the world history is coming to an end. And he, at the very end of that chapter, Jesus said that only the Father knows the day and the hour. Not even I know when it's going to happen. But think about this for a minute. God the Father scripted and has scripted down to the minute when Jesus will return in the future. He's very interested in the time. He has a specific day, a specific hour. And we see the same thing here. The reason that the Pharisees desire to wait until after the festival was overruled is because God had a specific day and a specific hour for Jesus to die. There is all a reason behind it. He is the author of days and hours and seasons. And that's true for, for you and me too. Not just, our, not just the day you, you got saved, but the day that you will die. Every moment, every hour of your life is being authored and you are being shepherded by the Father who loves you in that moment. Every minute belongs to him. Not just Sunday mornings, not just the first 10 minutes of the day, but every minute. The people in the story who don't like that truth are not the good guys. The religious leaders, they had their positions of power and they didn't 
They didn't like the fact that here's this teacher from Galilee showing up who's claiming to be God. And so they wanted to get rid of him and hold on to the positions and the power and the influence that they loved. So who are the good guys in the story? In this chapter, in chapter 14, the beginning, there's only one hero, if you like, that, that kind of comes out of the story. And it's not who you would expect. Just one person who gets it. And she doesn't even have a name in this story. Um, Mark doesn't tell us. If you read the same story in John's gospel, we do find out that her name is Mary. But Mark doesn't record her name. Look at verse 3. Here's this unnamed woman. She brings the most precious thing that she owns, a jar of expensive perfume. And she breaks it and pours it out on Jesus' body. It was an act of pure love. We don't know necessarily why, what was going on in her mind when she did this. Jesus later says that what she's done is she anointed me for burial, but she certainly didn't know that he was going to die or when he was going to die. She did it out of sheer love and devotion for Jesus. There was something about him that drew her heart to do this generous, extravagant thing. A few things about the setting I'll just throw in here. Um, they're reclining, Mark tells us, at a table in Bethany, which I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago is the kind of a suburb outside of uh, Jerusalem where Jesus had been staying, and then he was commuting into the temple for work, as, as it were. Um, the house here is identified as belonging to a person called Simon the leper, which is an interesting name. Interesting detail, because lepers, if you know much about lepers, how they were treated, they were supposed to be in permanent quarantine. They were not supposed to be associating with other people because they were very contagious, and so they would live outside the city, um, and you weren't supposed to have a meal with them. But this guy, is they're, they're all there to gathered in his home. And so the assumption that we have to make there is that this guy, even though he's called Simon the leper, that he's former leper. He was healed of his condition, perhaps healed by Jesus. We don't know that, but some scholars speculate that that is the case. Um, he's been cured. And we know from the other gospel accounts that uh, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were present. The same Mary that poured the perfume on Jesus. Uh, the, the, the perfume was made of, it says, pure nard, which is a, a, an herb, kind of like an essential oil, if you think about it. It comes from a rare plant that still grows in India uh, today. And what it was worth, that much oil that was in that jar was worth, it says, 300 denarii, which doesn't mean much, but the equivalent of that is one year's salary for a like minimum wage, one year's salary. So it's very, very expensive what she's just done. If you could imagine somebody, you, you know, somebody that you know, just all of a sudden that doesn't, is not a person of means. So this is, we're not, this is not Bill Gates here. This is somebody that's just an average woman perhaps even considered poor by some estimation, to take something that would be worth, say, $20,000, $25,000 and spend it in that, in just, you know, 30 seconds and it's, it's gone. You, you can kind of relate why people are shocked by this, like going, what are you, what are you doing? $20,000, you've just poured out on a dude's hair. Like, you could have sold that at the market and given it to, like, funded ministry, planted churches, 
fed the poor. You could have done so much with them. I mean, like you can, we can kind of relate to why people are reacting poorly here. And yet Jesus commends her. He memorializes what she's done. He says, everywhere the gospel is preached, this story is going to be told. You, you think about it, if you, you ever see, you know, memorials down, you know, North Terrace, or you go to a museum, and there are certain things in history that we, we remember, you know, we make movies about, we write books about, because perhaps it's, you know, tells us something about who we are, it's the story of our past, but oftentimes it's because we want to remember what someone has done, um, this great, perform this great act of, of bravery or heroism, um, so that we too might maybe have the courage to be such a person in our generation. You know, we, we commemorate and remember what we want to imitate. And so Jesus commemorates what she's done, saying what she has done is worthy of imitation. Take notes, men and women. She almost certainly did not, as I said, realize the significance of what she did. But when Jesus told the people criticizing her to back off, and that her simple extravagant act will be retold all over the world, even here in 2021 in Adelaide, Australia. I mean, she would have been surprised. She just was expressing her love for Jesus, and it says she did what she could. Jesus said that in verse 8, I believe it is. It said, you know, she did what she could, or she has done what she could. Um, the interesting thing about that, that English translation, I don't feel is the best. It doesn't really capture the original language there, because I think of like um, being a little bit sort of, that sounds a little bit frustrated or a little bit unsatisfied. Um, like, you know, sometimes my, my daughters have been known to ask me to help them do their hair, not very often, but occasionally, and I do it, and I think, you know, it looks good, and then they look in the mirror and they go, huh, dad did what he could. Um, it's not really a positive, you know, uh, feeling, expression. That's not really what Jesus is saying here. When he says she did what she could, the language is actually the same. If you remember at the end of chapter 11, where Jesus, they're at the temple, and they look over to where people are giving offerings, and, and he, there's a poor elderly widow there, and she puts in these two tiny coins. And Jesus, is when he's explaining to his disciples what she's done, he said, she has given all that she had to live on. She has done all that she could in that, in that moment. The, 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 the language he uses is exactly the same language here. Um, she has done all that she could. Literally, she has given every last cent. She has nothing left to call her own. She has gone all in in her love for, for Jesus. That's what, that's what he's saying here. And by saying that, she, he is saying that this is the picture of a true worshiper of me. Because the worship that Jesus deserves is for, for you and me to give everything that we have to give, to not hold on to anything else, not to trust in anything else as the source of our joy or security. It's to go all in. And you see the way the people respond in verse 4. You know, why this waste? Why is she wasting her life savings? That's just bad stewardship. It's interesting that Jesus honors her by pointing out that she's anointed him for burial. Just a little explanation about that. Um, 
in Jewish custom in that day, when, a when someone would die, um, they didn't embalm the bodies the way that, that we do to preserve them for the funeral. Instead, they would let, let them lie and, and wrap them in, in cloths and then soak those cloths with perfume. Um, so that there would be time for people to mourn, so that there wouldn't be an odor of decay. That was just the custom. And so you, if you know, if you've read the story of, of the resurrection of Jesus, and we'll get there on Easter Sunday, but you might remember that the women that went to the tomb and discovered that his body was missing, um, they were going there to do that. They were going there to pour perfume on the body. Um, they didn't get there in time. Because by the time they got there, uh, the body was already gone. So as far as we know, Jesus is the only body in history that got anointed for burial before he actually died. Um, and here, this is what's going on. And, and, and Jesus says, this is a, a beautiful thing. No one is going to forget this. It's a sign, actually, that his body, that's being, his living body, that's being anointed as if he were dead, that he, he, this story is not going to end in death. This is, death is not the final word for Jesus, and it will not have the left, last word for anyone who is in Jesus, in the family of Jesus. So Mark 10, and verse, sorry, verse 10, Mark tells us this episode was evidently the last straw for Judas. Judas had had enough. This triggered him. We know, if you read the same story in John's account, that Judas was particularly angry with what Mary had done, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was pinching money from the money bag. You know, it takes a pretty cold, hard heart to steal money from your, your closest friends. It's a heart that loves money more than anything else. And, and, and we don't know exactly if that was the reason he, he went to betray Jesus, but, we, but the Bible, the gospel writers are clear to let us know that Judas was greedy. He was a lover of money, and that that love of money was connected to his sin. See, he was all in too, but just in a different way to the woman who poured out the perfume. She, everything she had, she gave to Jesus. Judas, even what he didn't have, he took. It's a picture of the two ways we can respond to Jesus. See, we either worship with all of ourselves. We give and we let go of everything that we have as an act of devotion to the one who's given everything to us. Or we, we grab and we strive and we claw for things, even things that don't belong to us. The only worship that Jesus deserves from a person, from you or me, is to go all in. It's a, it's a life poured out for him, held nothing back. Judas was all in for the money. Mary was all in for Jesus, the only one who could save her. Nothing that you will ever do for Christ or because of Christ is wasted. Nothing. Whatever you give up, whatever you lose for his sake is not a loss. And that's not just money. It's time. You know, you give up an hour. There are people every week here at City Light South who give up 40 minutes of their time to go and serve our families and our kids. That's not a loss. That's a gain. There, there are those of you who have given up things to be here and be a part of this new church plant that doesn't necessarily have all the, the bells and whistles and comforts, and, and you're here. 
It's not a loss. It's a, it's a gain for his kingdom. And there are many, so many things like that, that we pour ourselves out for him, whether it's our, our time, our money, our reputation, our dignity, our, our relationships, our future prospects. We put those things on the line and we find that he pours back into us more joy, more connection, more family, more future, more spiritual blessing and wealth than we could ever accumulate in a hundred lifetimes. So now we're up to the second half of the passage, and it starts in verse 12. The worship that Jesus deserves is all-in worship. Jesus plus nothing else. Jesus came into the world as the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, offering himself as this once-for-all-time sacrifice for sins. And, and the way he wants the disciples to understand this is to bring them to a Passover meal that he's prepared, he's thought out in advance. So let's read the section, starting in verse 12. I'll read down to verse 26. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him one by one, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they, drank, they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's three things I want you to see from this section. Number one, right from the start, Jesus is in total control of everything that happened to him leading up to his death. Number two, Everyone who rejects Jesus, as Judas clearly does here, is responsible for their actions. And number three, Jesus' life was poured out for many so that those many might live forever, all in for him. So let's look at the first thing. Jesus is in total control in his darkest hour. Verse 12, Jesus has this premeditated plan to spend his last night on earth eating a Passover meal. Mark is very clear to tell us on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. He's telling us that because remember he, Mark's writing in Italy. There may be some non-Jews who are not familiar with the custom. So he's giving a little historical detail there. But he's also making the connection between the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and the upcoming sacrifice of the lamb of God. This was all pre-planned. There was nothing that happened that Jesus wasn't willingly walking into 
you know, on the surface here, Jesus in this moment, in this meal, is still a free man. The disciples don't really know that this is his last night on earth. They don't, you know, they know later, but not at this moment. But Jesus knew that he would be condemned. And so he's organizing everything leading up to it. In verses 13 to 16, he uh, gives them instructions what to do. Go into the city. There, there's a reason for that. The Passover meal had to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. It was just Jewish custom, so that's why they go into the city. Um, and so he says, talk to these, the man that's carrying the water. And so maybe some people, we don't know if Jesus had made prior arrangements with him and he knew him, or if this was just sort of divine insight. Um, it could be either. We don't know. But either way, the disciples find the situation exactly as Jesus described. And then they go and, and prepare the Passover in the room that he had identified. Um, this is not, if you look at Jesus, what he's doing here, you don't see a man who's desperately trying to save his life. He, he, he's walking deliberately in to the climax of the cross. He's marching towards his kingdom, and he's taking his disciples with him. Starting in verse 17, uh, they're eating a meal together. They're not seated, but they're reclining on couches spread around the table. It was custom to eat that way. And, and there at that meal, as they're reclining, sort of relaxed, he drops this bombshell. You know, he'd already predicted three times at least that he was going to suffer and die. And here's the first time that he says that the one who is going to betray me is an insider. It's one of you. He'll be betrayed by someone he trusts. He doesn't mention Judas by, or Mark doesn't mention uh, Judas by name. The other gospels do. Um, it, it's, it's almost as if Judas himself can't believe what he's about to do, even though he's already gone and, com and had the conversation with the religious leaders. Look at verse 21. It says, the Son of Man will go. This is what Jesus says. Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. You might wonder where in the Old Testament does it say that he's going to be betrayed by a friend? Um, Psalm 41, verse 9. Let me read it for you. Even my friend, in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. I was written a thousand years before this. Um, just as specific as the directions that he gave the disciples about how to prepare the meal. God's intentions here is pre-planning is down to the smallest detail. So if it was true then, it's true today. God is always on the move and arranging situations and, and, and people according to, down to the details. And you, I know that's a hard truth for some of us because some of us here, maybe all of us, have gone through really, really difficult things. And it brings up all these questions of, what did God allow? What did God intend? What, 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 you know, what did he know? When did he know it? We have all those questions, and I, I can't answer all those questions for you specifically or even to really touch on them today other than to say this. When we see these kinds of things in Scripture, that things happen according to how they've been planned in advance, we can know this, that the work that God started in you, the good work that he started in you, he's going to finish. He's going to finish. He has the power to do it. When you pray to him, to your father in heaven who loves you and ask him to do something, you know that he has the power to do it. He knows what needs to be done. He knows what's best 
even if we don't. He, like Jesus in this scene, is in control. So that brings us to point number two. Even though God is in control of what's happening to Jesus, the people, the people who are inflicting pain on him are still responsible for what they're doing. Listen to what he says about Judas. Judas, he says, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. I mean, it was written in Scripture that it's going to happen, but woe to the one who does it. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Uh, if you know the story of Judas, you've read it before, you know that as soon as he sees Jesus um, beaten after his trial, um, he has this instant regret, and he goes and he takes his own life. Jesus' words were fulfilled. All of this was according to plan. It was prophesied in Scripture. And some mystery that we find in the Bible, that God has the specific plans for people's lives, and yet people, those same people, are still held responsible. They're still accountable for their actions, even if it seems like they didn't really have a choice. And when you come to hard truths like this, you have to understand them in light of who God is, in, in light of his character, that he is love, he is kind, he is always just. And so, yes, Judas gets the punishment that his treachery deserved. And yet, look at God's patience with him up to the final moment. Jesus stuck with him to the end. He didn't give up on him. He trusted him with the money, even though he knew he was a thief. He's slow to anger. Judas shows zero anger towards Judas in any of the gospel accounts. He's, he's, he grieves. Takeaway for us is this. How, how you and I, how we respond to Jesus, it does absolutely matter. We are absolutely responsible for whether we go in all in for Jesus or we go all in for something else. We're responsible. You know, the Pharisees all throughout the Gospels, they knew the right words to say, but their hearts were hard. They were all in for themselves. They stand under woe, under God's wrath, just like Judas. But then compare that to Mary with her bottle of perfume. She didn't go to Bible college. She didn't have a perfect understanding of who Jesus was. She had certainly sinned at points in her life. This is not, going all in doesn't mean perfection, doesn't mean not having to repent and, and seek forgiveness. It just means being willing to trust the Lord with your everything. She, she didn't understand this, the way that she would be saved through Jesus' blood and how he was the Passover lamb. She didn't know all of that. She did know that he was, there was something about him. And she submitted to him as Lord. And it was a beautiful act. How warm is your heart to Jesus? Do you crave his words? Do you long to change and become more like him? Have you taken steps toward him in that direction? Yes, your change is up to him. He is accomplishing work in you, but you still get to take the steps. I still get to take the steps. Because at the heart, being a Christian is having a heart that used to be dead and is now alive. A heart that used to be oblivious or apathetic and now wants to know him. And if that's not you, 
then do, can I invite you today to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus and be saved today? The third and last point in this section is that Jesus' life was poured out for many so that those many might live forever, all in for him. Passover was uh, celebrated a time, or Passover celebrated a time in history when God had kept his word. He kept his promise. He said, I will deliver you. And he did. You paint the, the lamb's blood on the door. I will spare your firstborn. And he did. Not one was lost. All these things that God promised, there was a 0% chance that they wouldn't happen. God's promises are a guarantee. Uh, the elements in this Passover meal are the traditional Passover elements. There's the unleavened bread that was broken and shared, the cups of wine that were symbolizing blessing. Uh, Jesus takes these traditional elements and he gives them new meaning. Uh, he's not simply looking back on what God did 1,500 years before that in Egypt, but he's looking ahead, 48 hours ahead of what he's going to do when he becomes the Passover lamb, when his body is broken and his blood is poured out, and what he's going to do again and again and again and again for the next hundreds of hundreds of years when that blood, when his blood is applied to people like you and me. And the angel of death passes over our lives and we are adopted into his family. That's what this meal means. We've got the bread and the wine. Now, in the traditional Passover meal, you, you had the bread, you had the wine, but you also had the lamb, of course, and the lamb is missing from this meal. We don't, we don't see a record of them actually eating meat. We assume it was there, but it's not talked about. I think the gospel writers did that intentionally because Jesus himself was the lamb, and he had yet to be sacrificed. See, the lamb's blood is that 100% guarantee that just as he kept his word for the Israelites, he will keep his word for you. That if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, then your life is 100% redeemed forever. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do I believe that? How do I believe that? Because he has done it before. He will do it again. It is who he is. He keeps his promises. Every time we, we gather around these elements, the bread and the cup, week after week after week, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Not because we're morbid and we celebrate death. No, death is the enemy. But we're proclaiming what that death represents, that that blood and that broken body is our only hope, is our joy, is our guarantee that we will one day, with the disciples who were here, be sitting around a table eating bread, drinking wine with Jesus in his kingdom. That's why we do this week after week after week, so that when we are out away from each other and we are being reminded and told and preached to by the world that everything you see around you is your hope, is your joy, will last forever, we know that that's not true. This is what we look forward to that will last forever. This is our hope. This is our joy. Jesus says the next time that he drinks wine, the next time he drinks wine is going to be with you. You're going to be there. I'm going to be there. Your neighbor who has yet to believe, 
if he belongs, if she belongs to the family, they're going to be there. Drinking wine with Jesus. And then they go out after this meal singing a hymn. Having no idea of the darkness that's just on the other side. But the hymn, the hymn that they sing and the, the joy that comes along with it, that is going to last forever, that worship. The suffering that Jesus experiences, the, 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 the blood and the, the tears and the sweat and the, uh, and the agony lasts a moment. The joy and the singing lasts forever because of his blood that was poured out for you and me so that you and, and me might be poured out for him forever. Um, the best way to end this message is simply to invite us to, to come to the, the table today, and we're, and we're going to do that. Um, we're going to share this meal together as we do each week. Uh, I do want to read um, just a, a brief word from a, a, a dead guy, um, John Calvin. He reflected on the benefits of sharing this communion meal together regularly. He said, uh, he said this. He said, pious souls can derive great confidence and delight from this sacrament, from doing this, as being a testimony that they form one body with Christ so that everything, everything which is his, they, that's us, may call their own. Hence, it follows that we can confidently assure ourselves that eternal life, of which he himself is the heir, is ours. And that the kingdom of heaven into which he has entered can no more be taken from us than from him. That's why his body was broken. His blood poured out. That's why he went all in. So that you and I could be joined to him. So that we could go in, all in, for him, knowing that we will be with him forever. So here's the question I'll leave you with today. Is there anything else that can carry you through hard days and moments and seasons better than this, this picture of what he did for you? Is there anything that can motivate you to, to go all in with, your, with everything, to live with integrity and, and joy and thankfulness? Is there anything better than this picture of what he did that doubles as a promise of what he will do when we're with him in the kingdom? I don't think so. So I'll invite you to enjoy this meal again this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your promises. Thank you, Jesus, that your body was, was broken for us, that your blood was poured out. Thank you that you went all in for us. Lord, it's our desire to go all in for you. And we know that, Lord, and you know, certainly you know our hearts. You know how easily we can be turned aside and our gaze turned away from Jesus. But, oh God, in your mercy, you come and you forgive us. Again, you, you draw us back by grace. Lord, again and again, week after week, Lord, we want to remember and proclaim your death until you come and say, this is our joy, nothing else, nothing else. Lord, would you, would you teach our hearts this, this morning again? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.